I am going to be uh, a lot more tied to my notes than Neil was as we talk about uh, the Enlightenment. What what was the Enlightenment? Karl Barth, a 20th century theologian who really rescued theology from liberalism, although Karl Barth was no radical conservative himself, uh, said that the Enlightenment was a system founded upon the presupposition of faith in the, omnip uh, uh, the omnipotence of human ability. Yeah, it's kind of silly, isn't it? But it's true. Man becomes the final authority on all things. My church history, uh, Professor David Puckett, added this about the Enlightenment, also known as the age of reason or rationalism. Now think about this. Former distrust of man's reason and human culture. Do you remember what Martin Luther said about reason? What did he call reason? Tool of the devil was a nice thing he said. He actually called it a whore. Um, former distrust of man's reason and human culture as seen in the traditional emphases on depravity, original sin, predestination, and self-denial gave way to confidence in reason, free will, and the ability of man to build a glorious future. Now, when we talk about a lot of these thinkers, they claim to be within the church, but they were really sort of off to the side of the church. But you can see, even as we've been talking about some of the Puritan beliefs, Jacob Arminius, uh, how these kinds of styles of thinking, ways of thinking, modes of thinking made their way into the church and into even theologians that uh, impact the way that, that we think. Uh, the Enlightenment has had a huge impact, not only on church history and not only on the theologians of the day, but on the ways that we uh, today, both in the world and in the church, view reality and authority. Where is the authority, the ultimate authority in the universe? And even though, again, we're, we're, we're moving away from um, the the center of church thinking in this particular segment. There is no good church history class that is complete without at least an understanding of the ways that the views of the Enlightenment thinkers have shaped our thinking. Um, so in order to understand how man moved away from God as the ultimate authority, the source of all things, and the source of all knowing, uh, and moved toward ultimate, conf ultimate confidence in man's reasoning abilities to understand both God and the universe, we have to go back to the Reformation for just a moment. Uh, for Martin Luther, the Reformation was about proper doctrine or theology. He saw all of these uh, excessive um, mistakes that the church leaders, abuses that the church leaders were uh, uh, guilty of and enacting and, 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 and upon the church people. And so he wanted to correct that. He wanted to reform the church, not start a new church, but ultimately he saw that there was no way that there was going to be unity around 
uh, proper doctrine. And one of the ways that Luther articulated the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the true Church of Jesus Christ was through the use of terms theology of glory and theology of the cross. So anybody want to give a shot at, at defining those? Take a shot at defining those. And it's okay if you don't get it exactly like I would define it. You know what Luther meant when he talked about a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross? A theology of glory was a desire to uh, get to God without a mediator. He doesn't, we don't need God's help to determine who he is. A theology of the cross said man can't even know God, uh, much less be saved apart from God coming down to us. Uh, and God revealed himself in the most unusual of ways on a cross. Jesus dying for our sins. <laughs> so theology of the cross was a denial of man's ability to get to God without God revealing himself to us and redeeming us. Uh, Luther saw the biggest uh, hindrance to uh, people understanding God or God through the cross of Jesus as good works. People we're told by the church leaders, if you want to get to heaven, then you have to do this, this, and this. And of course, a lot of it involved giving money to the church. And believe me, it's tempting sometimes to go there, but you, you know better than I'm just kidding about that. But Luther said, you cannot get to God through your uh, good works. And he, Luther, though, had no idea what was to come down the road. Not only uh, or good works, uh, 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 an indication of a theology of glory, but as time progressed, reason and experience or feelings became very much uh, theologies of glory. Um, so if, if people were unable to see the hope that was completely wrapped up in the cross because of the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaching about the importance of good works and salvation, uh, reason was a greater danger uh, as it began to take shape and form through the Enlightenment. Beginning in the 17th, the late 17th century and lasting for about a hundred years, Western European thinkers began to exert enormous influence on the ways that people thought about God. Uh, instead of emphasis on tradition, and the heritage we have in those who have gone before us in Christ. Individualism and reason supplanted works as a way to get to God. No longer is it so much about me working my way to God, but it's about me figuring out who God is and living, yes, a good life indeed, but knowing God through the ways that I think I later especially in the early part of the 20th century. We're going to look at Pentecostalism and how people began to think experience and feelings were the way to God. In fact, you, you hear that now, don't you? You cannot be saved apart from the special work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's a theology of glory. It's about what I do, even if I say that this is God helping me uh, to feel this way. Just uh, like there were uh, cultural shifts that made 
the Reformation possible. So it was that Western European philosophers uh, were already thinking about new ways to know and understand God. In fact, uh, you could really say that enlightenment thinking began in the Renaissance all the way back in those days. Uh, René Descartes, probably the first one to think in, in, in the ways that uh, the later Enlightenment thinkers would be known by. Uh, he was a rationalist. Rationalism was man's attempt, again, to figure out God who he was. He was a French mathematician and a philosopher who rocked the Western world uh, when he made his famous conclusion, I think, therefore I am. Now that seems so silly to most people. But just think about the ways the world turned on that one thought, I think, therefore I am. This came as a result of Descartes doubting everything, including his own existence. I think I said in the last time, you know, Ravi Zacharias was asked one time, by a student, how do I know I exist? And he said, whom shall I ask? Whom shall I say is asking? You know, it seems ridiculous and silly to us, but it made a profound impact on the people who thought uh, about Descartes' conclusions of his his own philosophy. It goes back to what we mentioned before about authority. Who's the authority? You can have, in the beginning, God, or you can have, I think, therefore I am. Yes, and then from that, okay, there must be also a God. Descartes and Immanuel Kant later, we'll talk about him just a little bit. Particularly, these guys sought to um, dismiss any outside influence. If I'm going to know God, I'm going to have to not listen to you. I'm not going to have to listen to Scripture. I I have to figure this out on my own. And so Descartes doubting everything. He says, I'm going to come at reality by doubting. And since he was able uh, to debate his existence in his own mind, he concluded that his existence wasn't real. So it seems silly to us, but Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, was a big deal. Uh, Descartes was a lazy man who had brief periods of uh, creative inspiration and genius. Um... And he sought to prove that God existed in the same way that he proved his own existence. Remove all outside influences and see where your mind takes you. Including scripture, remove it all, see where your mind takes you. But anybody who thinks like this is already basing their thoughts on a foundation of truth that's been laid long before. Uh, Another time... uh, I heard Ravi Zacharias talking about it. He was, I think, Ohio State University. And he, someone was uh, showing him around campus and they came to this art building and they said, this is the first postmodern art building. There are steps that go nowhere and columns that don't seem to hold anything up. And Ravi Zacharias said, I hope the foundation is not like that. You know? <laughs> and, and, and it's true with the ways that we think. You know? It, we Our... We have the freedom to think these ridiculous thoughts because there are certain truths that are self-evident. They're established by God and nobody can function apart from them. So, Descartes 
um, said that God exists because the mind can actually conceive a perfect being. And so since I can conceive this perfect being, it has to be God. No longer is God the center of everything, but the individual mind is the center of reality. And rather, remember Anselm, faith-seeking understanding, I believe so that I might understand. Descartes turned that around and said, I want to understand and that will lead me to faith. Once I can get this all worked out in my mind, then I will believe. Descartes would sit in this large oven. Ovens in those days, you know, would go to the floor and you could you could actually crawl inside of those ovens, which concluded some people to say that uh, his thinking was half-baked or his ideas were half-baked. And William Temple, uh, who was an Anglican bishop, archbishop of Canterbury in the 20th century, said the day that Descartes shut himself up in his stove was the most disastrous day in European history. Um, I, I don't know, that may seem like a bit of a stretch to you, but it is absolutely impossible to overstate the impact of this monumental shift in the ways that people think. In fact, a number of people would say it was the most important epistemological, epistemological, come on, say it for me, somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, epistemological shift in thinking in all of history. Actually, that day was the garden. But then the day that Descartes came out of his oven and said, I think, therefore I am, was another one of those incredible days. And this day was inevitable, though. I mean, it had happened since the late 1200s when the Magna Carta had been signed uh, crying out for, for human freedom. When Columbus sailed past the point of no return. Think about this. His men knew that if we don't turn around, we don't have enough supplies to get us back. And Columbus said, let's keep moving. Man has never turned back since then. Always moving forward. Unencumbered, hopefully unencumbered in, in man's thinking, a humanistic kind of way of thinking. With the past, it's always about pressing forward. Uh, rationalism, though, was a continental movement. British and American thinkers didn't come about uh, their thoughts about God in the same way, didn't conclude their thoughts about God in the same ways that that, that, that was on the continent. Uh, John Locke was the father of empiricism. He didn't he didn't doubt anything unless it was proven uh, to be wrong. Um, Locke had a great deal of influence on the writing of the Declaration of the Independence. Jefferson borrowed heavily from Locke and in the in the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution are are based on Locke's thinking. Um, he began with sensory experience and sought to prove or disprove his experiences. So you won't be surprised that the scientific scientific method developed from this philosophy. You test on the basis of the most likely hypothesis. Uh, Locke indeed believed in God's existence 
but like Descartes, he sought to reason his way to God and just got there on a different path. Locke said, I don't believe anything, but okay, since my mind can conceive it, I believe it's there. Uh, Descartes said that. Locke said, well, I think God's there and I'm setting out to prove it. And he found ways to prove God's existence. Um, while there was a great deal of good that came from Locke's work, including this raging impulse for freedom, there was a great deal of bad that came from Locke's philosophy, such as David Hume's skepticism. I'm just throwing up a, a bunch of names, uh, people who had a, a big impact. Hume denied the probability of miracles, saying that miracles were so improbable that a reasonable person cannot be expected to believe. Now, if you've got a problem with miracles, you've got a problem with Scripture. And we would say, if you've got a problem with Scripture, you've got a problem with God. You may not have heard a blessing, but his rejection of biblical accounts of miracles, particularly the resurrection profoundly impacted Enlightenment thinkers and theologians alike. Lessing referred to a broad, ugly ditch of history that I can't cross. I can't jump across this ditch of history. Had I lived in the first century, I might have known what really took place. I only have access to what was said about the empty tomb. The report of miracles are not miracles themselves. So just because you say it happened, I don't know that it happened. We're talking about a long time ago. And man is so much more modern now and less superstitious than he used to be. And, and so don't tell me this is truth when I don't know that it's truth. A, a Catholic priest named Richard Simon said divine inspiration of scripture applies only to matters of faith, not to matters of history and science. You ever hear things like that? Scripture is always accurate with matters of faith in life. But with matters of science and history, well, it doesn't claim to be a science book. It doesn't claim to be a history book. It does claim to be God's word. And if it's inaccurate... That's a problem, right? Well, these are... Exactly. It's exactly right. Uh, in fact, the church... It took them about a hundred years to agree with Copernicus that, Copernicus that we have a heliocentric universe, not, not a geocentric. The Bible doesn't revolve around... I mean, excuse me, the, the sun doesn't revolve around the, the earth... Um, the earth doesn't revolve around the sun, I mean, but the sun revolves around the earth. Luther, in fact, said, that's just crazy. Heliocentric universe is crazy because the Bible says that the sun rises and it sets. So therefore, this science can't be wrong. Well, of course, the Bible speaks in the ways that we talk about life and reality. But it took them 100 years, 100 years to merge science and, 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 and biblical reports of how the life, uh, the world works in their thinking. And in the same ways that 
science can be badly wrong about Scripture, we can allow some of the ways that we think to hold us back from truth about reality. Um, so, you can see the impact of, of, of a guy named Simon. Uh, Immanuel Kant was a German professor of logic and math, and probably the most uh, well-known Enlightenment thinker, and, and also one of the most difficult to understand before you get to Hegel and Harnack, and they were uh, as much theologians as they were uh, philosophers. Um, Kant thought that religion was valuable only insofar as it served morality. He was big on the moral law within, not the gospel revealed miraculously from heaven. <clears throat> so morality and the moral law, your conscience is the is normative for Kant, <laughs> who oddly thought that he was saving um, theology, Protestant, saving the day for Protestant theology, but he only deepened the divide between orthodoxy and critical skepticism. Uh, one of those who was greatly influenced by Kant was Friedrich Schleiermacher. Anybody ever heard of Schleiermacher? And, and if you had a list of five or six of the most important theologians in all of church history, he's got to be on that list. Not because of the good stuff that he gave us. Bart is on that list as well that we'll get to. Although he was not, a, uh, uh, as I've said, a, a, a stout conservative. But Schleiermacher started theology down this road of liberal thinking. Um, he said that religion is a state of the heart. Um, he believed that scripture was a witness to Christ's person and work, but was an imperfect witness. So scripture tells us about Jesus, but we can't know. There are just too many things that are inconsistent, and we certainly, he like um, Simon said, we, we can't believe the miracles that happened and those before Hume uh, and uh, Lessing in particular. We can't believe those. So scripture is an imperfect witness. Jesus was the greatest human that ever lived, but he wasn't divine. Wow. I, I mean, really, how do you consider this guy a Christian theologian? And yet, he has impacted many of the people in what we want to call modernist theological thinking. These are all ideas that the church today is still wrestling with. It doesn't exist just in history, but those ideas are living out today where the miracles are, are too extraordinary to believe that there can't be a resurrection. So how do we, we still want to be Christian, we still want to believe the Bible, so we'll just say Jesus rose spiritually and not bodily. But that's not what we find in Christianity. We find that Christianity is a falsifiable faith. That if you can produce a body, you can falsify the claims of, of Christ. It, it's strange to see how people who say they're within the church are fighting the truth that uh, Christ established within the church. <clears throat> These battles of liberalism come from within, after all. 
Yeah, I think a lot of these guys, I've Schleimacher and the, those types of liberal theologians, they were trained in theology. They had their doubts, and as they they grew in knowledge, they nursed their doubts. And and, and and to say though that this is all a bunch of crock meant that they would have to do something else with their lives. It wasn't as easy in that day. And so cynic in me thinks that possibly some of it was very utilitarian in the ways that they thought. It was like, okay, well, I, I've got to say there's some value, but indeed <laughs> the Proverbs, Jesus, parables, there's a lot of uh, truth here, but that's a misunderstanding of the parables. Um, to say that Jesus' parables are beautiful teaching for everyday living. There's a lot of Jesus pointing out the Pharisees in his parables and just saying, you think you are speaking for God, but you don't know anything about God. The, the Enlightenment was a time when philosophers and theologians alike uh, said that modern scientific man can no longer accept, accept Scripture with all of its supernatural claims of God's miracles and his miraculous work in, in history. Uh, though they refused to outright reject God, if they had been honest with themselves, they would have just denied God's existence. Uh, instead, most of them became deists, who said that God set the world in motion uh, and eventually, and, and, and just walked away. He's really not involved in uh, our modern uh, times. Modern, by the way, the, the modern times was that term was given so because it's sophisticated. You know, we're sophisticated. We're modern. We don't think like people thought in, in the past. Um, probably, probably a majority of the founding fathers of America were deists because it was at the height of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment was huge in Europe and America. Not all, I'm saying that all were, but a lot were. They were Enlightenment thinkers. And Paul Johnson, who is a British historian, who's a Christian, uh, really interesting uh, read. Anything that you read by Paul Johnson is, can be fascinating, or like all history, can be very boring at times. But Johnson says that if the Declaration of Independence uh, and Constitution of America had been written a hundred years prior or a hundred years subsequent to the times that it was, it would have been peppered with scripture. But as it was, the Enlightenment was in was full throttle, and so consequently, there's a lot of talk about providence and the divine one in those early writers, but very little. George Washington, uh, Mason took the oath of office on a Masonic Bible, which, of course, the Masons denied Jesus. I had a Masonic funeral. We have more writings of George Washington than anybody in the 18th century, um, and yet only one mention of Jesus. Oh, a whole lot about God, but almost nothing about uh, Jesus. Enlightenment thinkers expected men and women to be moral people. Once again, this theology of glory. Not only am I reasoning my way to God, but I've got to be good as well. Uh, somewhere, though, uh, along the way, when people are trying to get to God, they 
became God in their own mind. We really don't need God when you think about it. Well, one of the ways that the Enlightenment has impacted our understanding of Scripture is our sense of a need to explain everything, but that's impossible. You just can't explain. If God could be explained, would he be God? Truly? We understood him fully? Are we creatures? I suppose he could have made himself known, but he clearly did not. Deuteronomy 29, 29, we quoted a lot. Uh, the things that, uh, the secret things belong to our God, but the things that were revealed to us and to our children belong to us or belong to us. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. God has revealed himself in the word, but he doesn't always answer the questions. Uh, Jacob Arminius, there's so many people that were just skipping right over, and this is the time we would have uh, talked about Arminius, um, John Knox, and, and the Westminster Assembly. Yeah, a lot of great stuff. I hope you read it in, the, in our text. But Arminius, as, as Neil pointed out, was essentially saying, I just don't know that I, I see that eternal security is spelled out as clearly in Scripture as you say it is. Well, Martin Luther essentially had said the same thing. Uh, we don't accuse Martin Luther for that. But Arminius said, I just don't see as clearly as you see. He was questioning a few things, but he was not what a lot of people want to make him out to be. He's this flaming free will, free will guy who almost was enlightened in his thinking. He wasn't that at all. He was a theologian that was impacted by some of the things that were going on in his day, but also his own personal understanding of Scripture. Um, since the Enlightenment, though, everything has to be proven or proved. Otherwise, it is, it's not valid. Uh, that was the age of reason, uh, the Enlightenment. But also all through modern times, if science couldn't, if it couldn't be empirically proven, then how can you say it's reality? Postmodernism, when you think about it, is a reaction to, some people say it's hypermodernism, but it's, it's in many ways a reaction to modernism. Do you remember those of you who were old enough, <clears throat> that means uh, just a handful of us in here, <clears throat> when you could hardly mention God in school, and now you can mention God all you want to, just don't say that Jesus is the only way to God. And I think the postmodern theologians, if this makes sense, are very much like the modern theologians. It's just... They don't mind the supernatural now. They say, oh yeah, we don't have any problem believing that. But they, also impacted by the culture, say, what you can't say is that Jesus is the only way to God. You can say uh, that God exists, and that Jesus died on the cross for man's sin, but you cannot say that God's the only way to heaven. You cannot say that there's a hell. You cannot say that God is sovereign in the sense that he oversees and, and 
at the very least approves everything that happens because then that would make him a monster. Emergent church thinkers are very much this way. They think that uh, one uh, writer said that, or emergent church leader said that if Jesus died, if God made Jesus die so that we could be forgiven for our sins, that would make him a celestial child. And I cannot believe that about that. So, modern thinkers responded their time. Uh, modern theologians, I mean, responded to their time. Postmodern theologians respond to their time. Uh, inside the church, when you've got someone who knows every answer to every theological question, you've got a person who's been greatly impacted by the Enlightenment. Someone who wants answers for everything and he has to figure out everything. It starts by doubt. Um, thank the Lord that he always has a remnant no matter what seems to be happening in our nation or even in the world. God is always on the throne and since the beginning of time He's been building his kingdom. Now, a fallen world kingdom is going to look a lot different than it's going to look when Jesus is on the throne on the earth. But God is always doing his work. And so in spite of all of these attacks on God's authority and God's word, God is doing his thing in the world today. Next session is going to be, and he's always calling his people back to himself. So next session is going to be a lot more encouraging. Uh, Neil, tell us about that. Sure. Um, we're going to take December off and uh, meet again in January when we look at the Great Awakening. So this will be highly impactful, especially in America, where entire generations of people, large percentages of, of Americans are reawakened the truth of scripture and salvation found in Jesus Christ. Uh, specifically we're going to be looking at Jonathan Edwards who's probably America's finest philosopher and theologian and he's going to wrestle with something that Puritans left off and he stepped right in to, uh, to pick it up and was that change agent that uh, in the conversation we're having during break the halfway covenant about what is that relationship what should it be between church and state as people are brought into the church as children. Uh, so be sure and read, up. actually I believe it's chapters 24 and 25. We'll give you some information about the Wesleys, who we'll discuss Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening. And if you want to learn more about uh, the Puritans, writings from them, writings about them, a little bit more about King James Version and where it fits in, in history. Just a couple years ago we celebrated the 400th anniversary of, of its publication. Uh, as well as a little bit more about positions on Arminianism and Calvinism. All those are linked to this week's resources. Be sure to check them out. Be sure to communicate. If there are any questions or comments that you want to share, I look forward to that. And if there are no other questions, this is our outlook for January. And I'm looking forward to it. I hope you all. Anybody know what uh, the famous sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached was? Sinners in the hands of the angels. So, we'll talk about hell next time. <laughs> we'll actually see if that was typical or atypical. Again, it's perception versus what we're 
that when it's done. Father, pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, we do praise you and thank you that through all our faults and failures within the church and all the decay that we see outside, you are still in your throne. You are still working your sovereign plan. Uh, it's easy to be discouraged in our own lives and the society around us. But Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us, uh, give us the faith necessary to lean wholly on you, to find our joy and contentment in what you have done and what you continue to do. I pray that you would enlighten our minds and hearts to the truth from your word that uh, we have seen and heard discussed in the lives of those who have come before us. I pray that we would find encouragement and that we would continue on understanding more of what you have revealed and living out what you have provided for us. I pray that you keep us all safe until we meet again so that we may once again come together in unity and faith and, and worship together under the name of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.